Welcome to the Dear Doc Podcast, where we will discuss the business of running a dental practice with a panel of experts. Now, your host, Dr. Christopher Hoffpower. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Dear Doc Podcast. I'm coming to you here live from my, uh, my studio in Alvin, Texas. This is the new studio. And uh, so we've had some technical difficulties this morning and uh, nothing I won't be able to figure out if I hold my um, IT guy's feet over the hot coals, but we'll take care of that later. So today we are joined by someone I'm sure most of you know, and that is Dr. Ryan Dunlop. Ryan, how are you doing today? I'm doing just great, Chris. How are you? Man, I'll tell you what, couldn't be better. It's uh, it's a beautiful Friday afternoon, been playing out in the sunshine with the kids. They're chasing lizards and bugs and all sorts of stuff. And uh, in fact, actually, I, I got to meet your boy just a couple of seconds ago, and he showed me some of the coolest faces I think I've seen on a on an interview. He's so an far. expert. Absolutely. <laughs> He's an expert in silly faces. So guys, in, in a departure from our usual programming during this COVID crisis, um, we had begun doing a, a mini series on the podcast. And what it was is it was an exploration of the different ways that people practice dentistry. And um, basically, it's an exploration of all the different business models that work. So, uh, Ryan, I, you're a very surgically oriented dentist, uh, and you own a, an extremely large practice that's very profitable. You teach other people to do what you do. I, I would call you, at, at the risk of sounding gauche, I would call you a super GP or, or, or a um, surgically, um, surgically specialized GP. What what are your thoughts on that, on that terminology? What, what would you prefer if if anything else? No, I think that the term super GP is kind of appropriate. I just think it has a growing negative connotation amongst some of the communities out there. Um, I just consider myself to be a truly comprehensive care clinic. So there's very few aspects of my care that are referred out to you know outside practices, <clears throat> not. 100% of what I do is done in-house, but a good 90% of it. So whether it's done by me or by associates or specialists who come into the practice, I just feel like I can provide a really comprehensive treatment uh, facility. So that's kind, of, that's kind of the moniker that I like to be known as, as truly comprehensive care rather than the term super GP is. No, and, it, and you know, I, I feel you, man. Whenever it first came out, I kind of rolled my eyes. And um, then I, I realized how few people were doing that many specialty services in-house uh, and how much most people refer out. Uh, and uh, it, it kind of grew on me. And now, like you said, there, there's kind of a bad taste in your mouth because they have some, some guys out there. You know, dentists. <laughs> dentists. Have you met dentists? But um, <laughs> anyway, so uh, a, a comprehensive practice is what you're running. Uh, but the business yeah. model that you're running is um, I think a really interesting one. And uh, you and I have spoken at great length on the different types of things that you do in your practice and the systems you have in place and um, what all is under one roof. So I'd like you to just briefly explain to everyone the size of your practice and what all you've got under one roof. Sure. Um, so in my practice, I run six operatories. Uh, right, uh, right now it's it's me plus a, an associate dentist who's been with me for a few months, and I bring in an uh, endodontic specialist every couple of weeks. 
So basically I've got three doctors working under one roof. Um, one of those rooms is dedicated to hygiene full time. And that's, um, I work Monday through Thursday, but the associate and the hygienist work Monday through Friday. So, um, more or less three doctors working throughout the day. Um, I have about six or seven back office assistants. I have three hygienists and about six or seven front office employees. And then I've got a completely separate business under my roof, which is my lab business. Um, I decided last year, maybe a year and a half ago to basically bring the entire lab production lab operation under my roof. Um, at the time I was, I was spending anywhere from 40 to 50 grand a month on lab bills. And it's not that I couldn't afford it. It just, it was becoming my biggest expense. And when I run, when I sit down at the beginning of the year and I plan out my year, I, one of the things that I do is I look at my three biggest expenses. Mm -hmm. So the big three for me were, you know, payroll supplies and lab. So I figure at the beginning of the year, how can I control these by five or 10%? over the course of the next 12 months. And eventually it just became impossible for me to try to control the lab expenses. They were getting higher and higher and higher as I was getting busier. And I, at the time I had a lab technician working for me, uh, just doing model work and pouring up stuff and setting teeth and wax. And I decided, well, if I purchased the entire lab equipment, can, you know, can we hire some more people and get a lab going? And he said, yeah, I think we can. So I bought milling equipment and scanning equipment and you know, intraoral scanners and went fully digital all within about 12 months. And so now I have six or seven lab employees as well. So total staff of about 25 or something like that, uh, which is a lot to manage. And, and we're pretty cramped in the space. We are, you know, six ops, 25 people. That's absolutely, that's a, it's a pretty cramped space. Well, you know, they say that there's a, there's a very specific um, equation whenever you're looking at management. And that is that each manager can manage five subordinates well. And once you get past five subordinates, things become really, really kind of chaotic. But whenever you you get past, you know, say 25 or 30 people, you're really looking at uh, growing a a large middle management team. And um, yeah, and that's what I have. Entirely entirely different set of systems too. So you've absolutely systemized your practice you've had to systemize your management team and you've had to systemize your lab. So I find that fascinating. So talk to me a little bit about that. So I don't have an office manager. Um, I, I am the office manager. Uh, What I have is a, is a system where we have coordinators for each department. So I have a lab coordinator. I have a front office coordinator, back office coordinator, hygiene coordinator. Um, I meet with that, with those coordinators weekly. And it's a meeting of about, like you said, four or five people. Those are the people that I specifically manage. So that's my cohort. Now, each one of those coordinators has a responsibility to manage four or five people um, in their departments. So the lab coordinators working with the designers and the finishers and the model room, uh, shipping, ordering supplies, implant coordinators doing the same thing, uh, back office coordinator, front office coordinator, they are dele- I'm delegating responsibility to coordinators that I'm meeting with regularly, and they are in turn um, delegating responsibility to the employees. And then each department has meetings weekly, and there's one big staff meeting that happens, but I'm not there for it. So I don't want to be there for uh, a general meeting where there's 
20 to 25 people all trying to get a chance to complain at me. So right. I delegate that responsibility to my coordinators and then they are responsible for being the first line of communication for my employees. So I definitely had to set up a few different systems to be able to disseminate information and keep things organized without having to manage every single employee along the way. So in a lot of practices, um, what we find is that there is a front to back animosity and um, yeah. you've actually got a four sector practice as far as I'm concerned. You've got your front, you've got your back, you have middle management and you have your lab. So yeah. how, do you, how do you deal with the interactions between those departments or, or is it, as you say, you basically, your, your coordinators just deal with it and you, you don't have any part of it? Or, or do you have some sort of system where there's not a whole lot of finger pointing when something goes wrong? Because in, inevitably, no matter um, how well you run things, something goes wrong. Yeah, I, I, I have found over the years, and, and I'm, my office is no different from everybody else's. We have tension between front office and back office, and you know sometimes there's miscommunications and unrealistic expectations. Uh, what I have found uh, is the most beneficial is cross-training. So taking your front office coordinators and putting them in the back office and having them work alongside your team in the back office and having lab personnel working in the front office, trying to share the understanding of what the job entails um, is a huge asset. Uh, I think most, most tension in this world is due to miscommunication. And if there's tension between your back office and your front office, most of the time it's uh, it's a miscommunication and the team members not understanding what the roles are of each individual person. So, you know, if the, if the patients are sitting in the waiting room and they're barking about waiting too long to be taken back, the front office is then just communicating that to the back office and the back office feels this pressure. Like we got it, like, like we're not performing at a high enough level. So if you take that, the person at the front desk and you put them in the back office and you have them help for a, you know, a couple hours, they see how hard they're working and they are you know more likely to defend their coworker rather than create, you know, tension and animosity between them. So I do a lot of cross training. My lab personnel understand the treatment planning process. My treatment planners understand the lab process. My insurance billers uh, understand, you know, uh, uh, patient flow. And, you know, it, it helps with the team aspect of it. So you said something there that um, two things really I want to address. And the first is, is there's a lot of people out there who will say, if you don't have your team specialized in doing a specific job or um, set of duties, then they're never as efficient as they possibly could be. And you're really pulling away from that person's potential whenever you split their duties and make them cross-train. That's one argument. I, I disagree with it, but that's one argument that'll come out of this. And another thing I noticed is whenever you were talking about the front people carping at the back, uh, for not being as efficient as they could be. You said we, meaning you are part of the bat. How hard is it still with the size practice that you do? And I, I know about this because you and I have spoken about it before to take off the doctor hat and put on the CEO hat. Because while you were just talking about that, you inevitably, you slipped into the doctor hat. And I thought that was pretty interesting. So can you, can you address those two points? Well, uh, if I'm going to be honest, probably the, biggest limitation that I have in my practice is I don't have enough time to wear that CEO hat because I am 
so clinically oriented and so busy with uh, patient care all the time that uh, I struggle to find time to switch hats and put that CEO hat on. And that's, you know, that's something that's something that I'm working on all the time to try and carve out time in my schedule to be the business owner as well as the doctor. Um, so I, I kind of think that I, you know, we have to wear those hats simultaneously. Um, it's, it's not a matter of switching back from one to the other. It's a matter of managing both together. Um, for me, it's, it's a challenge, uh, logistically, you know, um, I'm to the point where if I can carve out two to three hours in my afternoon before I go home to be the CEO, that would be the best thing for me because I'm a sedation practice. Um, my mornings are pretty much always surgical sedation and surgical. So, you know, that takes priority that pays the bills. So, um, the afternoons I I'm, I'm trying to create time for myself to be that CEO and to sit in my office and, and do the work to keep the business aspect flowing as well. But that's a challenge. I mean, I'm not going to lie. That's that's probably the biggest challenge that I face right now is balancing running the business aspect versus a bustling clinic. Yeah, it's a it's a hard balance to strike. Um, it always feels as if you have to choose one thing or the other. And um, sometimes it times, feels that way. A lot of times as doctors and business owners, our family is what suffers because we end up choosing the business because we have to because that's that's what feeds the family. It, it's hard to break out of the cycle. So um, it's very hard. And as, as you get bigger and busier, it's tempting to just dive further into that rabbit hole rather than pull back. Because if you have a, if you have the best month ever in your practice and you're killing it and you're lo and you're having fun and everybody and everyone's in a good mood, well, what's the first thing you do? You set a goal to go a little further the next month. And you're like, well, if we hit if we hit 200,000, 300,000 in production this month, can we get to 250, 350? Can we get to 400,000 in one month? And if you push yourself hard enough, you will get there. But then what are you giving up on the back end? Yeah, when you say yes to one thing, you say no to another always. But, you know, it's, um, I know you're, you're involved in a, in a project right now that actually is, uh, honestly, I think it's very wholesome thing. You invited me to, to come and talk with you as well. And it, it's about, overcoming these challenges as dentists and, and sharing our experiences and our failures because you know a sure. lot of people look at a practice like yours or they look look at a practice like mine and his practice is way cooler than mine by the way guys um i want to be ryan when i, I want to be ryan when i grow up so um but i want to work three days a week still so i don't know if i can find the path there <laughs> but um it's possible so i i think that um I think you should share a little bit about that, um, that endeavor with, with the group. Yeah. Uh, in, in this, in this well, it, it, it comes from a great doctor, Jeff Buski. He, uh, he came out to my training program a couple months ago and uh, we just struck a chord on trying to find balance in our lives. And uh, you know, he's got this philosophy that uh, you know, success revolves around a few different uh, uh, topics. Um, you know, your 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 fitness is part of it. Your finances is part of it, and uh, your uh, your faith is part of it, and uh, your your family is a big part of it. So, you know, uh, doctors like us, we have to we have to force ourselves to pull back and focus on the things that need need to be focused on. Um, it's easy to focus on one or two of those things, but if you were to ask the majority of dentists and doctors and in this country who are divorced and 
who are uh, uh, out of shape and suffering financially and su suffering psychologically, they would tell you that uh, excelling in one of those categories is not worth the uh, detriment to the others. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as a, you know, 40 something year old dentist who has a super busy, super profitable, um, cutting edge practice, it's, it would be very easy for me to just focus on that. Um, that would give me a lot of satisfaction in my life at this point. However, if it were at the expense of those other things I mentioned, you know, when I become a 50 or 60 year old dentist and I've lost some of those things, I wouldn't, I would regret my choice. And time's something you can never get back. Money you can always make more of. Yeah, money and 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 success. Uh, it's more fun to enjoy those things when you're taking advantage of the others as well. Yeah, and absolutely. if that gives no up point. a little bit of dollars in my, if that if that gives makes if that balance forces me to give up a little bit of the success factor, then so be it. So. With that being said, in order to have a practice like you do, um, there is a vast array of knowledge that's needed. And it, full disclosure, guys, I'm planning on going to Ryan CE. Um, he really knows his shit. So you've got differing areas of expertise. You, you are an absolute expert in digital workflow. Um, even though you and I disagree on one thing, which is I like guided implants and you do not like them. But uh, <laughs> I, I guess we can, we can agree to disagree uh, about that over a beer. But um, you, you have a, a vast amount of knowledge and technical ability whenever it comes to the digital side of dentistry, the lab portion of dentistry, the actual patient management and planning portion of dentistry the clinical stuff, sure. you know, the meat and potatoes. So where did you get your training? Uh, and, and how long of a road was that? Now, you and I are about the same age, but I believe you got out a tiny bit earlier than I did. So when did you graduate? And what was your road forward to becoming this, you know, ostensibly comprehensive surgical center? I uh, graduated in 2006. Um, most of the people in my class went on to be specialists. They went to specialty programs. When I told my dean that I wanted to be a general dentist, he laughed in my face. Uh, he said that that was kind of a disappointment for him uh, <clears throat> because he envisioned me going on to oral surgery or prosthodontics or something like that. And I said, no, I, I, I really want to be, you know, known as a general dentist. So I went to, I went to a GPR program in New York City and I stayed there for two years. Um, it was a really nice program. Um, very com it was again, pretty comprehensive care. It was a vet, it was a VA program. So we had, we had patients needing everything and there was not enough dentists to serve them. So they really depended on the residents to do a lot of the comprehensive work. So I got to do a lot of surgical work. I got to do a lot of, uh, implant work. I got to do a lot of prosthodontics, uh, removable and fixed pros in my residency. So after two years, I was, uh, I was definitely set to, uh, to make a splash wherever I landed. And I took a job as an associate, um, and I found this practice through an implant rep. I mm -hmm. called the rep in the city where I wanted to move to, and I said, can you help me find a doctor who's placing implants because I want to do sedation and implants and be a, 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 you know, a general dentist focusing on that. So she actually called around and found a, a practice for me that was that fit the bill and I flew out and interviewed with him and, and we agreed that it was a good place for me to start. 
So I show up on my first day and uh, he's got a patient sedated for me. Uh, he's running the sedation and I'm doing the dentistry. And he tells me to uh, go pull tooth number 30 and put an implant in. And I thought, oh my God, I, I don't know if, if I can do this. Like uh, I haven't, I had experience, but I, I was still a newbie and I'd never worked on a sedated patient before. So I walked into the room and I introduced myself. He gave him some medicines. He went to sleep and I got to work and I think I sweat buckets. I mean, I was absolutely terrified and uh, uh, I got through it and, uh, you know, never looked back. I got my sedation cer uh, certification later that year so I could run my own sedations and uh, it, it just took off. I, I, I started, I trained by doing, I, I never took any uh, like training courses. I didn't do any of these uh, continuums, implant continuums. I just learned by doing. And uh, if I needed help, if I if I had questions on things, I'd you know contact the reps for certain companies. I would uh, reach out to a few mentors that I had. But uh, it was really a trial by fire. Um, I started to do singles and and uh, then two or three unit implant bridges, and then bigger cases and bigger cases. And I was I put my I made myself uncomfortable a lot. That was the bottom line. And uh, there was a lot of times where I was doing things for the first time. Finding the ability to be comfortable being uncomfortable is the only way that you can really grow your skill set. You've, you've got to That's very the true. ability to live there. Yeah. And uh, you have to be, yeah, you have to put yourself in a situation where you're a little uncomfortable and you have to rely on your knowledge and your skill set to get you through it. And at the end of it, then you're just a little bit better and a little bit faster and a little bit more comfortable. And over time, uh, I developed a muscle memory for things. And uh, so I can't really credit any specific education program other than my residency. But the residency was uh, basically just a free-for-all. You know, uh, the, the, the attendings were doing their own thing and they didn't really watch us that much. So I was free to do whatever I wanted. Yeah. So it was my, my education was really just a trial by fire. Um, I got into uh, full arch cases uh, in residency um, and trying to push the limits on what was able uh, to be done. And then when I got into practice, I think that was about that was about 2000, 2008 is when I came out as an associate, and that's right when the uh, housing bubble, you know, uh, crashed and uh, our housing bubble popped. And so I'm, I'm a new associate, I'm in this practice, and then boom, everything explodes. And you know, this, the owner was scrambling to pay his bills and he was in debt and he was in, he was in trouble. And I just looked at him and I said, hey, why don't we run an ad in the newspaper that says 50% off dental implants? Let's just, let's just try it. You know, you love doing implants, I love doing implants. Let's just put an ad in the paper and see what, see what happens. So we put an ad in the newspaper saying 50% off dental implants and we were flooded. I mean, we got smothered in new patients right when that crash happened. So when everyone was panicking, we, I think we doubled our production in that month because we did this, we did this ad campaign. So he stuck with it. He, he, uh, he stuck with that 50% off dental implants ad for about 10 years. Wow. Did it work for all 10 years? <laughs> <laughs> it worked for all 10 years. <laughs> so even though the economy recovered, uh, he stayed with that 50% off dental implants ad forever. And uh, I eventually left the practice and opened up my own place about uh, six year, five or six years ago. And I believe he was still running that ad uh, when I left because it just, you know, it just pulled people in. 
I'm curious with, with his 50% off, how much was he paying uh, uh, screw to crown or how much was he charging? Uh, I believe at the time, I think he was doing about before we did that ad, I think he was at around <laughs> 4,000, 4,500 per tooth. So for like extraction, implant and crown, and then the 50% off, I think it dropped the implant to about a thousand and the crown to about 1500, something like that. So he was still around 2,500 after the half off, which mm -hmm. is, you know, not really half off for most offices now, but, uh, at the time it was, it was, I think it was, it was a big, it was a big, uh, cut into his bottom line, but we stayed super busy and doubled his production for the next couple of months. So that really helped. And that's, that's kind of the message that I'm sending to people now is, uh, don't worry about your practices. There's a huge demand for, uh, dental implants, a huge demand for surgical reconstructive dentistry. It's that hasn't changed. Yeah, but Ryan, uh, in fact, it's Ryan, hold on. Here's, here's, the, here's the deal, though. Let's be honest. Not everyone has your skill set. Not everybody has my skill set even. Yeah. So what is your advice to the wet behind the ears, got out of dental school five years ago, has never done any significant training, has been a regular old bread and butter PPO dentist associate for the last five years, What's your advice to them? And what's your advice to these guys who did a startup who've never learned any special skills? They don't know how to do anything but crown and bridge and fillings. What do you tell them? Um, my, my advice to most dentists, uh, regardless of the, the, the environment they're in, is just focus on the quality of your care. Focus on the comprehensive nature of your care and don't be afraid to compromise. I mean, don't compromise on the quality of your care and then to try to get ahead. So, you know, whether you're in a PPO office or you're in an HMO office, you're in an institution, if you consistently do good quality work, uh, not just, you know, the physical part, but the diagnosis and the comprehensive treatment planning, if you focus on those things and you present comprehensive care to everybody, I don't think you can fail. I don't think that you can uh, suffer in this environment because there's so much dentistry to be done. There's so many patients who need help and only a small percentage of doctors actually present comprehensive care to their patients. I agree. So that brings me to my next question, uh, which I was going to ask you anyway. So, Hey, thanks. Good segue. Uh, <laughs> how do you feel about the PPO dentist in this upcoming crisis, is this their key to freedom or does safety come with shackles? Good question. Uh, in my practice, when I opened, I only signed up with Delta. Uh, the other, uh, all the other insurances, I stayed out of network. Um, I did a startup. Um, I had zero patients. I had about a month to get ready for my practice. It was kind of a, a fast transition from me being an associate to me being an owner. Uh, and I could have very, very easily just signed up for every PPO under the sun um, for that security blanket. But I knew that that was a trap. I knew that uh, that was basically me giving away 40 to 50% of my production in order to get patients. And I would have rather just spent that money on advertising. So I stayed out of network. I kept my well, fee schedule well, pretty hold high. On, hold on. I'm that, make that was a big one. Here. Small argument here. So the guys who are PPO practices, they are spending 40% of their income on, on marketing. They're just not actually marketing it. Right. Because that's what, that's what insurance is. Being a network is yeah. a marketing expense. Yeah. 
It's just a dumb one. <laughs> well, it's not one that you can control. So, right. you know, you're, you're basically automatic. You're signing up to give away 30% of your production. And before I get any hate mail guys, I was a PPO practice. Whenever I first started, I had to fight to go out of network. I get it. I'm not picking on you guys, but it is yeah. an advertising expense. And it's an advertising expense. Like Ryan said that you can't control. And that's the big thing because in advertising, you're spending tons of money. You need to make sure you're tracking the ROI on that advertising and being able to pivot and control the message so that you can fine tune it to get every cent out of that advertising you can. So sure. talk to us a little bit about, a little, little bit more in that vein. So uh, I, I think this is going to be an interesting couple of years. I think that a lot of dentists are going to take this opportunity to start getting out of insurance. Um, I, I think that there's a fear factor there uh, that people are going to lose production. But I think the, the adage that, you know, every insurance that you eliminate, your production will go up a certain per, uh, percentage. Um, and I think that's absolutely true. If you, if you have a hundred patients who are on a certain plan and you drop that plan and go out of network, you're going to lose half of them, but the half that stay behind, that stay on with your practice because of the quality of your care. That's why I said that they're going to stay because of the quality of your care and the patient experience. So those 50% that stay are paying more than the share that you lost from the 50% that left. Oh, absolutely. Well, so for every single insurance that you drop, your production should go up as long as you're providing good quality care. Now, if you're doing, you know, really low quality work and you're doing a lot of redos and you have a lot of complaints, then that it's, it's probably better that you focus on that part of it first before you get rid of insurances. But if you feel like, hey, my patients really enjoy the work here and uh, they're going to stick around, going to the dentist is one of the scariest things that people will ever do. For, yeah. for many people, it's like top of the list phobia. So if once they find a dentist that they like and they, and they know that the work is good quality, uh, they're not going to leave. So if it costs them more, most of them are going to stay. So I do think that most dentists are going to take this as an opportunity. I hope they do to start getting out of network. I'm, I'm planning on uh, getting out of network with the last one with Delta uh, sometime this good year. You know, it only insurance only only makes up about ten to twelve percent of my revenue. So, you know, that's a goal for most people. That's 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 a really good number to be at 88, 85 to eighty eight percent cash. Um, that's what everybody wants. So, you know, it's not like holding Delta's not like holding me back. But where it does hold me back is my time. You know, if I if I have a case if I have a case for sedation and it's like eight or nine fillings and they're all, and it's a Delta patient. I might produce 1500 bucks off of that patient and it might take me three or four hours to get that done uh, versus a cash paying patient. It could be four or 5,000 for that same case. Absolutely. But so because I'm only one person, I can only do one thing at a time. Uh, where is my money best spent? Uh, where is my time? Not my money. Where's my time best spent in terms of what production I can produce. So being out of network really provides you with a lot of opportunities. And uh, you know, this financial crisis that that's impending uh, it's going to, it's going to force a lot of people to reevaluate. We're going to create, I always say that after one of these crisis, crisis periods, crises. we, we re, crises, we make a new normal, you know, there was a way we live life before nine 11 and there was a way we live life after nine 11. The same with the AIDS epidemic. There, there's all these times where the world has to shift and this is clearly, clearly one of them. And 
those shifts provide uh, opportunities for industries to change the way they do things. You remember how airlines were before 9-11 and how airlines were after 9-11? I mean, it was a dramatic shift and everyone was like, oh God, this is never going to work. But they shifted and uh, they, you know, operated a different normal. So dentists can take this as an opportunity to operate in a different normal. But the, the best part about that is how they shifted back, but now they make you pay for the same treatment you used to get before 9-11. Yeah. I don't know about you. I'm in the, exactly. the clear club and the, what, what, I've, I've, yeah. I've got a membership in three of these things. I just like walk in the airport and they're like, right this way, sir, get in the airplane, you know? <laughs> kick you in the ass on the way in. You know, it's, it's, it, most dentists are going to have to shift the way they do things. It's going to, you know, even me, you know, I, I'm used to going from room to room to room to room to room really fast. Five, right. 10 minutes each room. I get set up. My, my team is in the room before me and in the room after me. And I come in and I do the doctor step and then I'm gone. But now I have to think about personal pr- protective equipment. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 might, I might not be able to go from room to room to room to room so quickly without changing everything that I have on and, you know, right. uh, changing the room over really fast. And, you know, so <clears throat> there's a lot to be seen. There's a lot, there's a lot that we're all going to learn over the next six to 12 months after we get back to work. Um, I don't really, I can't say for sure how my day is going to be different. Uh, but I can tell you one thing is, uh, I'm glad that I'm not tied to PPO insurances right now because hmm. that you're now you're forced to spend more time setting up each room you're forced to slow down and isolate each procedure better and you're not going to be as able to flow from room to room to room. Who is that going to affect? That's going to affect the PPO dentist the most. But a counterpoint to that is um, are they going to begin block scheduling? Because that seems like a very intuitive thing to me um, is, is that they just begin scheduling. Hey, look, unless you've got $3,000 worth of work, you're not in my main chair. Uh, You get a little filling, you can go over there and you can wait. And we'll get to you when we get to you. And having one chair as awesome. a production or maybe two, two chairs of their production was sta- staggered and a third for emergencies or, or minimal work. But it, it, it's going to be definitely an interesting time to see. And I, I honestly think that the dental models are going to fracture even further. Uh, and that's kind of what this, this mini series is about is the, is, is the business model that you guys are running and how they're so different, how they're all successful. It'd be very interesting to see as we come out of this on the other side, which models shine in the new normal and which, which ones have to have to make some serious changes. I think that um, the offices that focus on like what you said, production, you have to schedule according to production. In my office, we schedule Mm -hmm. categories. So there's category one production, there's category two production, category three and four and five, I think. So category one production is sedation um, and uh, comprehensive care. So mm-hmm. full arch cases, big, right. bigger cases, basically $5,000 and above per appointment. Right. Then you've got category two, which is uh, you know between $1,000 and $5,000 in production per visit. And then you've got the smaller things in emergencies. Uh, you're running what, a $1,500 production uh, per, per hour production per chair? Um, probably a little more than that. Okay. So that I think would surprise a lot of dentists because most dentists are running $200 production or $300 production per hour. Yeah. We produce about 20 to 25,000 a day Mm -hmm. out of six chairs. So, you know, run the, run the, I can't do the math in my head, but, um, 
you know, it depends on the day too. So, uh, but on Honestly, average, I would say 1500 to 2000 per chair. You know, whenever you got the time top practice that you do, mine, mine is kind of like someone took one of the corners off of your, your rectangle and they, <laughs> they sawed it off, but it's, it's, it's a similar thing. I might do $55,000 one day and the next day I'm doing a thousand. Yeah. And, and, and it's, yeah. it, it's, it's the nature of the beast. Exactly. So, Following up on the last thing we, we, we touched on, which was uh, these changing models. What percentage of practices do you think are going to fail coming out on the other side of this? Something I've been asking everybody. So I'm not trying to put you on the spot here. Yeah, I don't know. Um, <coughs> I think you, you told me you thought it was going to be one out of five. I don't know. I, I'm, I, I'm a little bit more optimistic. I, I'm thinking maybe one out of 10. I hope you're right. I really do. <laughs> I, I, I hope I'm right. Uh, you know, like I said, there is going to be a, a lot of pent up uh, demand for dental services, you know, and throughout through the summer. And hopefully most of us keep track of the patients we're taking off the schedule and we're trying to get them back on the schedule. Um, and as long as the dentist can weather a few months of little to no income, which ho hopefully I, mo I hope most of us can. Um, then I think we're going to be fine. Uh, this this uh, ep this pandemic, this crisis that we're in, like if, to, it, to me, it's <laughs> yeah, right. It's a plague, <clears throat> but it feels very. It's it's very different for our economy in one sense. We haven't had any infrastructural changes. We haven't had any. There's no like buildings on the ground. There's no like thing for us to recover from. Except in Utah. I mean, there's huh. Except in Utah, they've been having a, sh they've, they've had 30 um, category five and greater earthquake, not category five, but rather. Um, five, 5.0. 5. 5. Richter scale. Richter, Richter scale. That's it. They've had 35.0 or greater earthquakes since this began. Really? Yeah. Really? But people are not talking not. about it because COVID. You know. Yeah. So the, everybody's, ready to get back to work like everybody is as soon as it's deemed you know safe to go back to work everybody's going to be itching to get back to work there's not a there's not going to be a humongous fear factor of getting back to work as long as it's as long as we're not hearing about covid cases anymore i think that everything will start up again really quickly um the question is you know the long-term ramifications of all these businesses not having revenue for two to three months or four months at a time, that's going to, we'll just have to wait and see how the markets do on that. But I think in terms of most dentists, I think we're going to be really busy. I, I don't think we're going to open up our doors and there's no, no there's not going to be anybody there. Uh, I think the patients are going to really need to get in. They, you know, some people might be making more cost conscious decisions uh, on uh, their elective care. So maybe someone who was planning on doing 20 veneers six months ago might not be thinking about doing 20 veneers now. Um, but you know, if I have to, I'll go back, I'll go back to doing some fillings and crowns and root canals for a few, yeah, uh, a few yeah. months. Why not? I mean, I, I, I don't, don't have to do a full arch every day. So I'm, I'm bringing on an associate now and, um, he is going to be coming on. Um, he's going to be coming on as a PPO dentist. And it'll be uh -huh. Oh goodness. All right. I was, I was wrong. Uh, I wanted to make sure I wasn't lying to you. Um, since March 18th, Utah has had 700 earthquakes. Maybe only, wow. maybe only 500 of them were over, uh, over five or something. 
That's interesting. Yeah. I, I didn't mean to get distracted, but I hate saying something and then going, am I remembering that right? Wait, was that right? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Utah sounds like they've, uh, they've got a lot to rebuild, but uh, mm-hmm. the rest of us, uh, I think it's going to be a fast return to nor- uh, uh, at least normal work pace. I don't know what the workflow is going to be like, but uh, the work pace I think is going to be there. So any parting words of advice for um, dentists out there who are worried about this, um, who are just looking for someone to tell them what to do in this, in coming out of this thing? Um, I, don't, I, I don't know if I'm the right person to give that advice. I, I think I'm in the boat too. I just know that for myself, um, I'm just going to stay the course. I think that I think the worst thing that I can do is start really panicking and trying to change the way I do things uh, to try to cut corners or cut costs or, you know, obviously just like everybody else, this has given me an opportunity to kind of look at my finances and determine if there's fluff anywhere that I can uh, consolidate. Uh, I think this is a great time to be doing that. I think this is a great opportunity for us to, you know, look at our P&Ls and look at our, uh, you know, production and look at our expenses and try to find things that we don't necessarily need and try to consolidate our expenses. But I'm just going to stay the course. I mean, uh, there's always going to be a demand for dentistry. I don't know if I'm going to be able to charge you know, what I charged before for full arch cases. I don't know if I'm going to be able to uh, keep my schedule as full as I was. You know, before this crisis, I was booked out two to three months at a time. Um, And I don't know if that's going to continue. But, um, you know, uh, dentistry is very versatile. You know, there's a lot of things we do, uh, whether it's cosmetic work or pain pain reduction or, uh, or, you know, uh, improvement of function, improvement, improvement of aesthetics it's never going to go away and dentistry will always be a part of everybody's life. And as long as dentists focus on the quality of their care and comprehensive care, I think we're all going to be fine. Uh, that practices that were really suffering and super underwater before are the most vulnerable ones that are probably going to go under or have to be absorbed into other practices. But the practices that focus on comprehensive care and quality of care, I think we're going to be fine. Um, uh, I think it's just a matter of being patient and, and waiting for the economy to recover because it seems to always recover. Well, if it doesn't, we're all screwed anyway. <laughs> if it doesn't, I'll, I'll come out to Texas and we'll sit on your porch and watch the kids play and drink bourbon. Well, that, that sounds like a great plan. You know, I, a buddy of mine asked me yesterday, uh, he was kind of poking, poking the bear, trying to mess with me. Because I said, I, I think we're heading for a very deep recession and possibly even a depression. It just depends on a couple of factors and how we respond to them at, as, as a nation. Um, I, I don't by any means think it's predetermined, but I do think that we're in dangerous ground. And um, he said, so you're going you're gonna to be buying gold and stockpiling? I said, dude, are you kidding me? If, if, if the end of the world's coming, I'm buying cigarettes and booze. <laughs> That's the real trade goods. <laughs> and ammo. <laughs> and ammo. No kidding. Actually, you know what? I said that. Um, man, thank you for, um, for coming on. It's been a, a very engaging conversation. And um, I hope that, uh, that some people out there have gotten something out of it. Can, you know, considering, yeah, me too. Considering the source, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, it's my pleasure, Chris. I think you do, you do a great job in, uh, in uh, disseminating information uh, unbiased to uh, dentists all over the country. And uh, I, 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 was, I was super excited to come on and just, just shoot the shit with you. Well, hopefully it won't be the last time, my friend. Guys, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Gear Doc Podcast. Uh, again, this has been uh, an interview with Ryan Dunlop, the Comprehensive Surgical Center Dentist. Is, is that okay for <laughs> Comprehensive Surgical Center Dentist? I can live with that. You guys have a great day, and thank you for sharing this time with us. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Dear Doc Podcast, your source for the business and legal questions associated with your dental practice. Don't forget to subscribe to the Dear Doc Podcast on all major platforms.